little commercial before I start. Uh, I'm not uh, going to be preaching a topical message on Mother's Day today, and I want to give a little bit of a, uh, uh, a reasoning behind that. Not that I'm apologizing for what I do, because as a matter of fact, I'm excited about what I'm doing. <laughs> but I do want to let you know um, one of the reasons why I do what I do, or why we do what we do, it's our philosophy of ministry here, to focus on the scriptures, to, bre- to preach the whole counsel of God's word, to keep going verse by verse through the Bible, to not allow the pastor, the preacher, to dictate um, what he has to preach on this week. If that makes sense, it's not my job to try to figure out what's going on in your life and then come up with a message and then me try to apply it to your life. It's better for me to just stay to the text and stick going verse by verse. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times for us to go over special things, and there will be times for that, or question and answer times and things like that. All that said, it's funny how often when I'm going through the scriptures and going through a book of the Bible, we come along and we have a special event that's coming along, and it fits perfect. Well, today, this one might not fit perfect. Today, we are studying the martyrs in the tribulation period. Period. So the title of the message is not Martyrs on Mother's Day. <laughs> but it is important for us to realize that that's what this church is about. You want to know the dis- one of the distinctions of our church. We're going to stick to the Bible. We're going to go verse by verse through it. And the good news is, is that by God's grace, I'm not going to uh, take a passage and try to jump into it and jump out of it on one Sunday and, and mess it up. I'm going to go through the book, and hopefully you're going to learn about what the Bible says in its context, and we're going to go verse by verse. Okay? So all that said, turn in your Bibles to Revelation 6 as we continue our path down the tribulation and the wrath of the Lamb. The main idea of our passage today will be the fifth seal. And it may not fit perfect in our minds, as I mentioned, with the day that we have here. But I'm convinced God's word is good and sufficient to encourage us. So let's read our passage. We will be in Revelation 6, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the fifth seal. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that as we look at your passage that you will help us to learn about your word, to learn about you so that we too can stand firm for the word of God and have a testimony that we maintain before the world 
that will honor our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For, Lord, that's why we live. We live for you and we die for you. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing. We pray that you will help to encourage our hearts to be steadfast in all of our circumstances. Help us to learn from this passage and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Remember, last week we covered the first four of the seals of the acts or the wrath of God initiated by the Lamb. Again, this is the beginning of the tribulation period in the next couple of weeks, uh, probably next weekend, right? It's next weekend that I'm going to preach on a Sunday night. Um, Not this Sunday night, but next Sunday night, I'm going to do like an overview of um, uh, eschatology. Um, You can bring your notes, pages, blank sheets of paper, and I'm going to do my best to kind of give you a summary of where our doctrinal statement lands with eschatology. We kind of went over this and kind of show how the two books, Revelation and Daniel, fit together um, a little bit, do the best we can. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to do our best to kind of show the broad picture of of history, human history, and how that all works. Um, And it's not going to fit into some perfect little box and all these things. There's going to be little things, but we're going to go over that on next Sunday, but to give or Sunday night. But to give you an idea, we're in the middle of the tribulation period. This is before the great tribulation, which is most likely at the halfway point. This would be the transition right here. The fifth seal, the sixth seal starts the halfway point. At the halfway point, there's something else that's mentioned in Matthew 24. We'll get to today. Um, later on, it's called the abomination of desolation. It's talked about in G- by Jesus in Matthew 24. And that happens between verse 11 and verse 12 at some point in that area. So we're going to be discussing this. This is in the middle of the seven-year period. And we come along to this fifth seal. And how in the world is this wrath? Did you read anywhere in here that there's wrath? If out of all these you might say, well, I saw the wave of deceptive peace in verses 1 and 2. And I saw the wave of world wars in verses 3 and 4. We saw last week. And then we saw the wave of worldwide famine in verses 5 through 6. And we saw the wave of global death in verses 7 and 8. But how is this a wrath from verses 9 through 11? Is there a wrath here? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. In the previous four seals, each of these waves were initiated by the Lamb breaking the seals, right? Remember? Today, it's the same way. In verse 9, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal. So all of this is being initiated by the Lamb. And who is the Lamb? Christ, right. Jesus Christ, right. In each of these judgments, we saw the sovereign hand of God. Remember that he was granting this power. He was granting this authority. He was granting for them to bring this war. And he was granting for death and Hades to come. And authority was given to them. So we see his sovereign hand in all of this. And each of these judgments we saw it was more of a movement or a wave over one act of one specific person. However, we saw that the Antichrist is most likely behind a lot of this and Satan. We also saw by the time of the fourth seal, it appears that over 2 billion, if with the population we have today, over 2 billion people could have died during this first half of the tribulation. That's a lot of people. Think about it, folks. Three and a half years, 
Over 2 billion people die. That's huge. That's greater than any of the world wars. If you added all the world wars together, all the worlds of wars of all time together, and all the plagues together, you still would not compare to that number. That's huge devastation. Now let me ask you, is the wrath of the Lamb great? And this is the first half. This is the lower end of it. When we get to the sixth seal and then it goes on into the others, the trumpets and the bowl judgments, it only gets worse. So God's wrath is being poured out. And then we find, found out from Matthew 24 that these were just the beginnings of the birth pains. It's parallel to that passage. It's imperative for us to remember something about God's judgment as we get into this and, and develop this a little bit f- further. We as humans have a problem with God's wrath if we view certain things wrong. There's two things that we could possibly view things wrongly. If we view it wrong, we will have a problem with God's wrath. The first is if we view mankind wrong. If we view mankind wrong, when we look at this wrath and we see two billion people die, we might say to ourselves what? This isn't fair. Now, all of you have probably heard the phrase, why does uh, God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? You've heard that phrase. That phrase is got some wrong presuppositions in it. Presuppositions are pre-understandings. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The answer should be, God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people at all. The question's wrong. There's no good people. That's hard to understand, but listen closely. The Bible makes it very clear. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? Nobody's good. None of us are good. We're all wicked. Anything that we get is what? Grace. It's blessing. Now, I'm telling you, I know when I say this, that some of y'all are sitting there going, wait a second, there's no good people in this world? Now listen, none of us are as bad as we could be probably. I know that. We're not as bad as we possibly could be. But the Bible is very clear that in the state of that we live, humans, we live as wicked people. We're in a fallen state. And so if God brings wrath on the earth, Is he bringing it on good people? No. He's bringing it on wicked people that are rebellious towards him. And apart from the grace of God, ladies and gentlemen, that's where all of us would be. Do you understand that if you come to church on Sunday, that does not make you a good person. If you read your Bible, that does not make you a good person. The only way that we are a good person is based on one thing, one thing alone. It's by the imputed righteousness of Christ to our account. God giving his righteousness to us through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. What is my value? Why do I stand before you? Do I think I'm something special, a good man? No, I'm not. My faith and my trust is in Christ alone for my righteousness. I'm nothing without him. The people in this tribulation period are denying Christ. 
They have rejected God. And in the process, they may be good on the outside. But if they haven't trusted in Jesus, they are bad people. And they're getting what they deserve. Okay? There is no one in hell that was close to getting to heaven. (laughs) Everybody in hell hates God and is not repentant. They reject God. Anybody that's facing the wrath of God here rejects God. And they don't submit to the God of the Bible. There's also one other view that we view things improperly with God's glory and his grace. Now, what people don't get is they say, well, God is loving and kind and good. And so wrath is just out of line. God can't bring wrath. God can't be just. There can't be an eternal hell because God's too kind. He's too good and and gracious. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrong view of the God of the Bible. God is very clear. God is holy. God is just. He is 100% righteous. He never sins. All sin in his eye is an abomination to be rejected. He is holy and set apart. And yet at the same time, he is also 100% loving and gracious and kind. He's all of those things. But he's not just the ones we like and throw out the rest. God is not defined by me. He's not defined by you either. He's defined by what? Himself, the Bible. And it's who he is. This is who he is. He is a God of justice and grace. He's a God of holiness and kindness. Here we see God's grace runs out on the earth. His long-suffering, he's been long-suffering for years and years and years and years. But now, the wrath of the Lamb has started. He is a just God. So if we view man wrong or we view God wrong, we're going to have a real hard time as we look at two billion people dying. (coughs) Do you understand? Everybody get it? But if we view God right, and we understand who God really is, When we go to wrath, what are we going to say? Perfectly just. Makes sense. I understand it. How do you view God, ladies and gentlemen? Don't let your mind and your heart be the determination of who God is. Don't define him by you. Let God's word be the definition of who God is. If you think about this, we'd probably never get to this on Mother's Day if we allowed our minds to be the guide and our hearts. I'd be afraid to preach on wrath on Mother's Day, right? Because I'd be saying, wait, wait, I want to define God as the loving, kind God because, you know, let's just be a kind today. Do you understand? My heart would do that, but it would miss the point of who God is. Let Scripture define who God is. And so we have our passage. Today we're going to focus on this fifth seal that the Lamb breaks on the title deed for the earth. Notice we start with the voice of the martyrs. The voice of the martyrs. There's a stark contrast here between these martyrs 
those who had been killed or slain, and Stephen in Acts 17, in Acts 7, right? Remember in Acts 7, Stephen's being stoned and killed, and how did he respond? He responded with these words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How is it that Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them as they're murdering him, but here we've got these martyrs saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There's a stark contrast, isn't there? Why does one guy say, hey, don't hold this sin against him, and the other people say, what? How long before you judge him? What's the difference? There's a dramatic difference. One, Stephen, is still on earth, and the others are where? In heaven. One, Stephen, is viewing those who are are doing this to him as possible converts. But the ones in heaven here are viewing these as enemies of God. There's a distinction there. One is dying in a great time of grace. (laughs) The others have just died in a great time of wrath from God. It's important that these people are being obviously led by the Holy Spirit too, right? God is working in these people. Is there a time for an imprecatory psalm? Is there a time for an imprecatory psalm calling down God's judgment? We're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I would suggest to you we need to be very careful that we pray at the right time. (laughs) And in the right motives and with the right attitudes if we are going to pray it. Who are these martyrs? Look in verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. These martyrs are during the tribulation period, as I mentioned. One thing is clear, that when God begins to judge people, they do something. What do you think they do? They lash out at people that associate themselves with that God. Think about this for a second. When God begins to pour out his judgment, what do you think that the people down here getting the judgment that hate that God, what do you think they're going to do to the other people that associate themselves with that God? They're going to get mad. And the more wrath that comes from the Lamb, if you stand up and say, I'm with the Lamb, (laughs) what do you think those people are going to do to you? Obviously, these are martyrs during that time because they associated themselves with the Lamb, the one who's pouring out the wrath on the world. Think about that for a second. In the same way, do we associate ourselves with the God of the Bible that allows for tribulations in our world today? He's still sovereign over the tsunamis. God is still sovereign over the things that happen in this world, right? Do we still associate ourselves with him? Do we say, oh, I don't really like that. I think I'll rechange who God is and become an open thinker and make God into my own image and I'll associate with this God and deny the creator God that's sovereign over everything. These people associated themselves with the lamb who was pouring out the wrath. And so what did it get them? Death. That's what it got them. These believers are physically killed. But their spirits live on. I think it's important for you to note here that they are slain, right? That means they're dead physically. But what are they doing? They're speaking. Have you all ever heard the phrase, some of you might have heard of this before, soul sleep? Have you heard that before? Anybody heard of soul sleep? Soul sleep? 
That's a common heresy that's around right now that says that when your body dies, your spirit sleeps or it rests. And it's because Jesus, and, and, and it's often used, even Paul uses it, the idea of sleeping. It's a uh, metaphor for death. It doesn't mean that our bodies, when we die, that our spirits lay down and we go like that and we're just clicked out from God until Jesus comes back. Notice these have died physically, but they are what? Interacting with God. This right here is a good, if anybody ever comes and asks you, hey, does our spirit go with God and talk with him and commune with him when we die? Here's a good one for you. Because these people are dead physically, but their souls are interacting with God. So they're dead physically, but their spirit lives on. These martyrs are only the beginning of a great number of martyrs in the tribulation period. As we'll see at the end, it says, until the number of those who are going to be killed had been killed. And these are the same martyrs that Jesus alluded to in Matthew 24, 9 to 10. Listen closely. I'll read it to you. You can go over there if you want, but... Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will portray one another and hate one another. And then it continues on in Matthew 20, or 24, 15. If y'all have ever studied Matthew 24, it is a tricky little proposition. Because when you get to Matthew 24, the disciples say, okay, when's the end going to come? They ask this question. And then Jesus begins to explain the end times in Matthew 24. When he does, he's talking to these Jewish men. Very important. He's telling them about what it's going to be like, okay, when the kingdom comes. And the tendency for people to say is, is well, he's talking to the disciples, so they're going to be killed. 24, 9 is talking about the disciples being killed. And they are killed, right? So he's talking about their coming death? And the answer is no. In this section, he's talking about the Jewish converts that are going to happen during the tribulation period. He skipped ahead. And one of the keys is, is this little phrase found in verse 24, 15, where it says, let the reader understand. It pushes things forward into the future. Jesus is talking to the disciples about what's going to happen in the future thousands, in this case, of years later. Of what's going to happen when this great revival happens. You speaking of Jewish people that will eventually come to the Messiah as God had promised. But if you take and you see Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, they almost line up perfectly. They're almost identical, going through the same phrase and in the same order. It's beautiful. So all Revelation is is an expansion of what Jesus started in Matthew 24. And here we see that same thing in the same order. Now we've got persecution happen, happening in verse 9 and 10, just like persecution happens in 9 through 11. So where are these martyrs back in verse 9? They are underneath the altar. Underneath the altar? The altar is symbolically pointing here to an altar of incense. This would be an altar where intercessory prayers or petitions are made to God. It is probably not a burnt offering altar of the Old Testament. 
And let me tell you why. Look over at Revelation 8 for a second. Revelation 8. This same idea of the altar and the altar of incense is included. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints under on the golden altar which was before the throne. It's this idea of a place. It's symbolic of a place where God is petitioned by those who have died to come on, bring the wrath, bring it on on the earth. Not on us, but on bring on the wrath. Bring about the restoration of the creation. That's what this altar is. It's a place where people that have died, in this case it says saints, not special group of people, but all who have been declared holy by God through faith in Christ, are now petitioning for God's wrath and His justice to come. So it's an altar of incense, a place where petitions are made. The martyrs are most likely located here to point to the petitions of God, and they petition Him to action. Now, third question, why are they there? Look at it. It says it. It says right in the middle of verse 9, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Obviously, they're in this place because they had been brutally murdered, right? But why were they brutally murdered? It gives a great explanation. And folks, oh, if there was one thing that could describe our lives, I hope that these two because clauses can describe our lives too. Because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. What does this mean because of the word of God? They were martyred for their association with the word of God. These people had obviously been converted during the tribulation period and they held fast to the scriptures. And what? The scripture reveals who? Christ. They held fast to God's word and God who is revealed in them. It also gives reason, notice... Because of the testimony they had maintained. Now, I love the way this is worded. Look at it at the end. And because of the testimony which they had maintained. The reason why that word maintained is there in the New American Standard is to get across the idea of the verb there. The word maintained is not literally in the Greek translation, that word maintained. Why is it there, though? It's to get across a point, a very important point. It's literally the word having. But it's in a special tense, and that tense is done this way to show a continuous having, holding on to it. They held on to this testimony continuously in the past. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. It wasn't just these, these people that were martyred didn't just one day say, Oh, I'm with the Lamb. Oh, I'm with the Lamb. It wasn't just a one-time deal. They didn't just stand up and go, hey, I'm with the lamb. You're dead. It was an ongoing testimony. These people had gotten converted, and they had an ongoing testimony of their faith in Christ. Their lives reflected an ongoing testimony to Jesus Christ. And that's what got them in trouble. It's not just what they said. It's how they lived. Their lives were different. Remember I told you last week that in many ways you've got total wickedness unveiled, right? 
Think about this. All your neighbors that are unbelievers, if you were still here, by God's grace, the raptures happened at the beginning. We're not going to be here. But if we were here, just imagine what it would be like if all your neighbors just acted out everything they thought about you. <laughs> well, I really like Mike's TV. I'm just going to go in and steal it. Oh, Mike's in the way. I got a gun. Shoot him. If everybody's like this, unhindered, unrestrained evilness, what do you think a person that stands with the lamb is going to look like in contrast? It'll be stark, won't it? You get, again, it's going to be, wow, who is this? I know why he's like that. Everybody else is completely off the hook when it comes to anger and, and, and evilness. But you've got this one person over here that's genuine, loving, kind, living out their testimony for Christ. The contrast will be what? Night and day. And these people lived it out. And they will live it out. And what will that get them? Does it cost us anything to do to live for Christ? I would suggest sometimes it does. But I have to admit to you, ladies and gentlemen, to live for Christ in America and live for Christ in our world is not really that costly, is it? I mean, think about it. We stand up and say, I love Jesus, and they say, well, you're a freak. That's about the worst you can get. Right? Or you stand up and somebody tries to say, oh, we'll just take that. And the person behind the counter says, you know, you can, you can steal it. I'm not looking. And you say, I can't do that. i got to pay for this. Oh, who do you think you are? You're better than us? That's the worst maybe thing that somebody would say to you? In this day, your testimony with Christ will cost you something most likely it will cost you your life now this speaks to something I love this you got these people here because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained <coughs> let me ask you a question ladies and gentlemen how well do you do at maintaining your testimony before the Lord how well do you maintain your testimony and how well do you reflect the glory of Christ in your life? Now, just a side note here. If you do do that, do you attribute it to your own abilities? <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully you're constantly saying, no, The only if I do anything good, and it's by grace that I do good, it's grace, right? It's the unmerited favor of God in my life is why I maintain this testimony, right? What do we have here? Look at this. This is beautiful. We have grace in the middle of the greatest display of wrath. God doesn't change. Even in the highest of high of his wrath and his justice, you still got his grace evident in people standing for the truth. See, the spirit has to be working. A lot of people say, well, isn't the spirit going to be taken out of the picture and the world's going to be left by itself? And they take that Second Thessalonians passage and impose on that and think on that. Well, that means that the spirit's completely gone. 
Well, folks, if that happens, no one's getting saved during the tribulation. <laughs> because you can't save yourself during the tribulation. You can't save yourself when? Now. He's the one that works regeneration. He's the way, only reason why we do any grace. So what does it mean that the restrainer is taken out? Well, most likely it means that his common grace is withheld some. It does not mean that he's completely void, because if he was completely void, what does that mean? No one gets saved. Nobody's sealed. These 144,000 that we'll see in chapter 7, it's impossible for them to get saved. Because they can't clean up their lives, ladies and gentlemen. They need the Spirit. And in order for somebody to maintain a testimony, they have to have the grace of God working in their life. And take that from me. Listen to me closely. You will only maintain your walk with God by the grace of God. You need God. That's the only way that you will have, a main, have and maintain a testimony for Christ. So we've got God's grace on display here in the middle of his wrath. It's neat, huh? This group, this group doesn't include all the martyrs over all the ages, ladies and gentlemen. It's only the ones during the tribulation. But I would say that they suggest a similar pattern to all those martyrs, right? In the same way, very much like. Martyrs have been all the way through the Bible. Think about it. It's the, the first murder was, in a sense, a martyr, right? He stood with God. And his brother hated it. And he killed him. He was jealous. And it goes on and on and on throughout the Bible. Martyrs are everywhere. And it's very important for us to understand this is commonplace. And it's happening even today in our world. Even though the tribulation hasn't started. I just can't see the first four of these seals already being taken place on our world. But along those lines I was reading about a mother. How about this one, ladies? That was martyred during the Reformation period, during that time. She had just had a new baby. And the baby was still being fed by the mom. And it was during the reign of Bloody Mary, and she stood up and said with her husband and with some other men of her congregation, I'm going to stand for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. I've read this in Fox's Book of Martyr. They took the baby from the mom and gave it to the community, and she was drowned with her husband. Pretty intense stuff, huh? But this is what it means to walk with Christ. I'm convicted by that. You know why I'm convicted? What is it with us? We have little sacrifices that are called for for us. Little things. And we grumble and complain in our heart. Even your own pastor struggled with it this morning. I got here and I had to get everything ready. I had to lay out the chairs. Everything wasn't done. Confession of your pastor right now. Got dirty. Here I am, saying, I want to be like these martyrs. I want to stand firm. I'm not grumbling, complaining in my heart. I got to do this by myself. 
We just don't get it, do we? That we all in here say, I want to be faithful to Christ, right? I want to stand with Christ. But then when something bad happens at our work, what do we do? Grumble and complain. When somebody mistreats us, oh, that's not fair. No, to be like these martyrs. That maintain their testimony. Or like this mother that maintained her testimony to the point of watching her child killed or taken from her and her killed. Can you imagine, ladies? What it says is that our view of God is way too small. Would you not agree? Our delight in Him is way too small. Oh, folks, Take it from your pastor. We need a better glimpse of Christ, don't we? So when we sing that song, More Love to Thee, do we sing it and mean it? More love to thee means not me, but you, Lord. No matter what that costs me, not me, but you, Lord. Not me, but you, Lord. Is that your plea? I also think it's important to note the way this is worded speaks to not just being what the people preached, but how they lived. We can talk and talk and talk, but if our lives don't match our words, then what does this mean? Nothing. Oh, folks, listen to me closely. I believe our church is getting grounded really well on the word. I think we are. I think we're learning the scriptures. It's a great thing, isn't it? Isn't it neat to be in a church that really studies the Bible and gets it? We understand passages and really get how great God is. That's great, isn't it? I want our lives to match our heads. I want our lives and our character to match what we know. We have new people coming in all the time, and they're going to see us, and they're going to say, man, we're, man, y'all are studying Greek, and you've got these languages, and, man, you're doing these hard things. You know what I want them to say? Visitors, if you're here, these people love Jesus. And they're consistent. Their lives match their hearts and their love for Christ to the point where if I were to go to battle with these guys, these people would lay down their lives for me. If persecution happened, they would be the one that stepped in front of the bullet for me. They would say, choose me. Take me, not her. Take me. That's what testimony is all about. Is that the kind of church you want to be a part of? That's what I want this church to be about. That's what I want our lives to be about. That's what these martyrs were all about.
What did the martyrs say to God? Notice it's imprecatory. Imprecatory is a phrase used for calling down God's wrath on people. They say, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's very similar to Psalm 74, another imprecatory concept. In verses 9 and 10 of 74, it says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? How long will the enemy revile? And then it says in verse 11, Listen to this closely in 74. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Listen. Destroy them. (laughs) That's what the psalmist says. Kill them. Wipe them out. It's very similar, isn't it? Same concept. How long are you going to do this? How long are you going to go before you wipe these out, these people out? Their imprecatory prayers are not primarily because, though, and listen closely, because they've been mistreated. Oh, this is so important. It's because God's name has been dishonored. Oh, this is so important. This is the ground for when you call down wrath on someone. You hear me? Listen. Close. (laughs) Because remember what God, or what Peter said, or what Jesus said to Peter when Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how many times do I forgive this man? And he says, 70 times 7, right? When do we say, hey, Lord, take him out? (laughs) Is it when we are offended or when God's name is dishonored? That's crucial. In Psalm 74, in verse 18, it says, Remember this, O Lord, that that the enemy has reviled, and a foolish people has spurned your name. Look. The call for the imprecator to say, Hey, call down wrath. God, bring this right, is when they are, it's not that they are offended, but it's when God's name is offended. See, that's what these people are doing too here. Look at it closely. Look in verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging? The basis of it is what? By them murdering, your holy and true character is being what? Maligned. God, you are being offended. Not that we are offended. We are the ones that get the offense. We've been offended, but ultimately it's hurting who? God. His character. God is holy. He is true. He is just. He is righteous. And these guys call down and say, God, how long? Based on the fact that God is being martyred, in a sense, through the martyrs. God is being put down. So in the same way, they say, look, God, you are holy. You are Lord here. He says, and this term is not the normal term for Lord. It's the one with absolute power and authority. It's the term that means you have absolute power and authority. Who are these people to take life? Who are these people to murder? God, you are the one with absolute authority. You're the Lord. Take them out. How long? 
You are holy. You're separate from the world and its sin, and they are full of sin. You're true. You're always faithful to your word, and they aren't. Lord, show yourself. The heart of their prayer is the desire for God to triumph and to manifest his glory and honor and to vindicate all those who trusted his word and bore testimony of his glory. It's important to note they ask how long. They don't say you must take action now. That's important. Why is that important? Again, it shows their heart. It's not about me. It's about you. And they ask. They don't demand. Whereas in Psalm 74, it does seem to be a little bit more demanding. Destroy them. Here, it shows complete submission. How long? So my question is, how we approach God speaks to how we view God. How do you approach God, folks? Do we approach God expecting Something. In other words, Lord, I want this now. Give it to me. I want this, my name to be straightened out. I don't like to be treated bad by people. Take them down. That's not fair. If that's our prayer, then we're going to God just like a little spoiled child. We're going to the, hey, Dad, I deserve this. Hey, I hate going through the stores, right? With the child that's there that says, oh, I want that. I want that. I want that. We've had this discussion, had to go through it, teaching and learning. What's the expectation of the child that walks through the store saying, I want that, I want that, I want that. I deserve it. If we go to the Lord and say, Lord, this ain't fair, have judgment. We're expecting God to move in the way that we want him to move. And that's wrong. But these people don't think that way. They're concerned with God's honor and his glory. And they say what? They go to God hoping and praying and trusting in whatever God would want and wanting his name to be honored. If we approach God with an attitude of desiring God's honor and his glory, we really get it. We understand. So the million-dollar question that keeps coming to mind is, how in the world is this judgment? How is this judgment? I mean, we're in the middle of judgment. How is it judgment? Answer? Think about this. How much does God love his children? How much does God love his name? His own holy name. How much does he want to be honored? He deserves it, doesn't he? It's not wrong for God to want to be honored, correct? Because God is God. He's the creator of all things. He deserves honor, right? When his own children that he loved and he's called have been martyred, they go to him and say, Daddy, I want your name to be exalted, to be honored. What do you think God thinks? It builds and stokes his anger. Yes, you're right, child. My name is holy and true. When you come to me, little one, and say... Can you imagine? I want your name to be holy and true. I say yes. What do you think God's doing at this moment? Do you think he's getting more angry or less angry? 
The petition of that soul to God is stoking God's wrath. The worst thing these enemies need is for God's own to be praying for their heads. And that's what's happening. And it's working in perfect harmony, isn't it? In God's glory, he's being demonstrated, and God's wrath is being stoked. You want to make God mad? Hurt one of his children. You want to make God even matter? Have one of his children pray wrath against you. Because <laughs> God hears the petitions of his own. It's important for us to remember again before we start praying these imprecatory prayers. Are we, are we more concerned because we've been hurt or are we concerned because God's name has been filed? I don't think I have any room to pray any imprecatory prayers yet. I've been in a couple of cases where I came close. <laughs> However, even in those, I was fully aware that God could save at any moment before they died. And that's what I prayed for. I've only had a few times in my life where I've actually faced somebody that really was tough on me. And even in that case, I saw him more as the opportunity for God to save, more of a Stephen situation. Not that I always get it right. Also, I think it's important to understand that these people are in heaven and they see the wrath of God unfolding. So they know when to pray an imprecatory prayer, don't they? They're not in these bodies of death that we carry around. So if God's honored... God is honor. If God's honor is your concern, then maybe pray it. But I, I would suggest to you, you might want to start with conversion. <laughs> Please, God, save these people. In other words, this passage is not prescription. It's description. Don't take this as, oh, okay, I can start praying down imprecatory prayers on anybody that offends me. Okay? That's not what this is. <laughs> I know we kid about it occasionally. But in reality, that's what it's about. Now, how does God respond? And we'll finish with this. Like, God gives them white robes. This is a picture of the righteous standing before God. The sovereign hand of God gives these martyred saints white robes. These believers, this is symbolic of their right standing with God. Second, he provides a place of rest. <laughs> They were told that they should rest a little while longer. Roscoe states, they are in the presence of God and safe forevermore. Wow, what a blessing from God, isn't it? From people that were harassed and tormented for their faith in Christ. Now they are given rest. Third, God promise, promises that it will be just a little while longer before his name is shown completely. The little phrase means that the time with which God holds, withholds his full wrath is only for a little while longer. And there will be more martyrs. Notice he says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And finally, we see God reminds them 
he is sovereignly working out his plan to the exact number of those who would be martyred. It's funny. I was talking about this the other day with some of y'all. One of you has talked, I think it was you, Daniel, I was talking about how the sovereignty of God is one of these issues where we, we don't look for it under every rock, but it's amazing once you really get the concept of God's sovereignty over everything, everywhere you read in the Bible, it leaps off the page. Well, this is one of them. Look at it. Right in the middle of verse 11. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. What does that say? There's an exact number. Until the exact right amount of people who were to be martyred was complete. Hold on, rest a little while longer. That means what? God knows the number of martyrs in the tribulation period before what? It happens. And has determined it. It's a wild thought, isn't it? How control is our how in control is our God? One hundred percent in control. Does that mean that we're not responsible? No. <laughs> Don't throw one out without the other. We have a responsibility to honor God and love God and serve God, right? But God is in sovereign control until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. Folks, so in conclusion, we see God responds. His response is, temp- is stern but tempered with patience. I'm, con- I'm, I'm convinced that God is completely in control even in this most wretched of times. It should give us comfort, right? He's still in control of our world too. I'm also convicted because of how quick to anger I am over the littlest things. And yet God here is being patient and patient and patient and patient and patient. I'm also comforted because I'm so so very thankful how patient God is with wicked people like myself. Can you imagine if this wrath immediately came on us who sin when we grumble in our hearts? (laughs) Aren't you thankful that he is a patient and kind and loving and merciful God? God is, God's judgment is coming, folks. Yes, he is long-suffering, but his mercy and grace should lead all of us to him. Let me ask you a side note here, and we'll close with this. There are two options as we talk about the wrath of God. Listen closely. Everybody, listen closely. Look at me. I want to see young people's eyes, too. Listen. There are two ways that you can face the wrath of God. One with the Redeemer, one who steps in place and takes the wrath for you. Or, two, you take it yourself. In this case, God, in his glorious grace, has provided a Savior for you. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, came and lived a perfect life. God on a cross was nailed to a cross by godless men, and the wrath of God was poured out on the Son. All the wrath that we deserve was poured out on the Son. And he took our wrath. For all who will receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. Give their life to Him. Trust in Him alone 
God takes your wrath. And you won't face the wrath of God. The other option is, is that you say, no, I'm a pretty good person. I think I can take it. His wrath can't be that bad. I'll take it by myself. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you have not repented and trusted in him, listen to me. (laughs) Go to Christ. Confess your sins. Trust in him. He alone is the one you want taking your wrath, not yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing your son, the one who was slain. Lord, we know it in light of who he is and what he's done for us. Counting the cost means that we may need to die one day for him. And as weak as we are and as prone to sin, Lord, we know that our glimpse of Christ and our understanding of Christ needs to grow. So we pray that you will help us to know him better and trust him more. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your goodness to us as displayed in these martyrs during the tribulation period. Oh, Lord, we do pray for you to come quickly. We long for the day when you will be displayed as holy and true throughout the whole world. There will be no more mocking of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There will be no more mocking of our Father. There will be no more evolutionary thought. You will be known as the creator, the sustainer of all things. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you will help those that don't know you. Draw them to yourself as your word says you do. Help them to see their sin in light of a holy God. And help them to trust in you and you alone for their salvation. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.